I know we haven't sung that hymn in a while, but it, I, it's so rich, and uh, it's so comforting to know that that's the experience of the church throughout history. Um, one of the things we'll be talking about today is found there in stanza three, by schisms rent asunder, by heresies distressed. How do we handle our schisms, our differences as believers? Uh, that's what we'll be talking about today in Romans 14. And so I invite you to turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 14. Uh, if you didn't bring a Bible and would like to follow along, we'll be looking at the text pretty closely. You can find it on page 949 uh, in a church Bible. It's also, the text is printed there on page 8 in your order of service. And uh, that way you can see it as, as we unpack it this morning. We've been going through the book of Romans, and um, we'll continue through that. We are nearing the end as we come upon um, Palm Sunday and Easter. We'll be finishing up Romans pretty soon. But ever since chapter 12, um, Paul has shifted into focusing primarily on what the life that's changed by grace looks like. He's been talking in particular about the Christian life, how God's grace changes us. And in 12 verses 1 and 2, chapter 12 verses 1 and 2, he talks about how we're not to be squeezed into the mold of this age, but instead God is at work transforming us and renewing our minds and helping us grow in our understanding of how he views the world and how we can walk accordingly, how he wants us to respond as those who have been so changed by his grace. And we've seen that love for others is at the heart of a worshipful, living sacrifice type of life. Um, Chapter 13, verse 8 says that love is a debt that we owe to all people. And it's a debt that we never finish paying in this life and in a sense for all eternity as we will continue to relate to one another in love. And this applies to those who are in the church. This applies to those who are outside of the church and our neighbors. This also, he even says, applies to our enemies. And as we saw last week, this rule of love also applies to how we deal with our differences with one another. And as we come to Romans um, 14 and 15, I, I have to confess that I'm tempted to treat it as kind of a checklist, um, to look at it as he's talking about the weak and the strong, And to say, okay, what are the exact issues that are going on here that Paul's talking about? And then figure out, well, am I weak or am I strong? Which side am I on? And then whichever side I'm on, what am I supposed to do? Okay, Romans 14, got it. Let's move on. Um, Let's move on to something else. In reality, it's far more complicated than some sort of checklist about clean, unclean, meat, vegetarian. We'll talk about that as we go. If, if you haven't been with us and you're wondering what in the world are we talking about, we'll, we'll explain it uh, in a minute. But the, it's a striking passage as it's talking about things that are not um, common to us every day. And it is complicated. In reality, we are often, we would fall into the camp of strong about some things and weak about other things and vice versa. And the reality is, as you study this out, it's actually difficult in the Christian life to always be able to discern where we draw the lines of what are issues of Christian liberty and what are things that are core and central to Christian life and faith. Um, And so these are things that we wrestle with and there aren't the clearest of answers all the time. It's not just some checklist 
that we can follow. But that's good, because Paul's not giving us a checklist. What he's actually doing is giving us something far more. He's helping us to see a perspective of how the kingdom of God works and how God views our differences this side of glory so that we as believers can have kingdom priorities and a kingdom posture toward one another as we navigate and not eliminate these differences. These are, something, these are things that we will navigate until our Lord returns. And so Paul is giving us a perspective by which to view all these areas of Christian life, especially ones where we have differing convictions, and, and we'll see that as we go on. So let me read our passage. It's um, chapter 14, starting in verse 13, and we'll go through verse 23, uh, which is the end of the chapter there. So this is God's word. Therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer, but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. I know and am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself, but it is unclean for anyone who thinks it unclean. For if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you are no longer walking in love. By what you eat, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. So do not let what you regard as good to be spoken of as evil. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Whoever whoever thus serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. So then, let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. Do not, for the sake of food, destroy the work of God. Everything is indeed clean, but it is wrong for anyone to make another stumble by what he eats. It is good not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything that causes your brother to stumble. The faith that you have, keep between yourself and God. Blessed is the one who has no reason to pass judgment on himself for what he approves. But whoever has doubts is condemned if he eats, because the eating is not from faith. For whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. So far the reading of God's word. Let's pray and ask his help as we seek to be changed by it this morning. Our Father in heaven, we confess our lack of knowledge. We confess our need to understand And we give you thanks for your word that helps us gain a perspective on how to see things as you see them. Will you help us this morning with all the thoughts and cares that are on our hearts and minds to see the wonder and the beauty of your love for us in Jesus Christ and how that affects how we view one another. We ask that by your spirit you would illumine the the text for us and give us hearts to understand and believe your truth. We ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we'll look at this passage in three points, and I'll mention them as we go, but point one is beware of stumbling, point two is decide differently, and point three is keep kingdom priorities. So beware of stumbling, decide differently, keep kingdom priorities, and just in case you're time or outline conscious, I'll be spending more time on point one, um, so you don't need to sweat it if it seems like a long point. Hopefully, we'll see. We'll see how much you should start. So we'll begin uh, with point one. Beware of stumbling. Beware of stumbling. Paul begins this section with a command not to judge. He's resuming the thought from what we heard last week, and you'll notice it there in verse 13. Therefore, 
let us not pass judgment on one another any longer. So with the therefore, he's tying back to what he said before, which just by way of reminder, key truths of that are Jesus is Lord and you are not Lord of your brother and sister and we will give an account to God and so you don't need to be at work judging and condemning one another for these differences in Christian practice. And so that's how verse 13 begins. But then he does a play on words with the word judge. You see how it continues. But rather decide, and that's the word judge, rather judge never to put a stumbling block or a hindrance in the way of a brother. And so he says, stop judging, both weak and strong, stop judging one another. But what he does here with this play on words is he now shifts to speaking to the strong about their approach toward the weak. And he says, beware of stumbling. Now, what in the world is Paul talking about? And so let me just kind of bring us up to speed from from chapter 14 again. His use in the text that you probably heard of clean and unclean language signals clearly for us that he's speaking about people's views in the church there at Rome of what they can eat in relation to the Mosaic law, the Old Testament law, which laid out these clean and unclean distinctions in particular about food and also Christian practice. And so you had people who Paul is identifying here as the weak, and the weak were professing Christians, and they were convinced that they still needed to keep some Jewish dietary laws. And you think about their situation, right? They probably were from a Jewish background. They probably lived their whole lives believing that God didn't want them to eat certain things because it was either unclean or the way it had been prepared was problematic. And so all of a sudden, now being a Christian, it's telling them to forget all of that, in a sense, to see that Jesus has radically changed things. So it could be people from a Jewish background. It could be a Gentile who came to faith in Christ and then was discipled by a Jewish believer who taught them from the beginning of their faith, God does not want you eating these certain things. They are unclean. And now Paul is pushing back against that. So that's the category of the weak. We need to stay away from these unclean things because of their relationship to the Mosaic law. The other category is the strong. The strong knew that it was okay before God to enjoy meat and wine and other gifts of God as a gift from him. And Paul makes it clear in this passage that they are theologically right. He says in verse 14, you'll see it there, I know and am persuaded in the Lord, this is heavy language there, in the Lord Jesus, that nothing is unclean itself. Paul's saying this is true. I heard it from Jesus' teaching that we heard read in our scripture reading. Uh, These things aren't unclean in and of themselves. I know it from my relationship with the Lord Jesus and what he's revealed. This is what's right. The dietary laws of the Old Testament are no longer binding upon Christians because Jesus has come as a fulfillment to the law. He reiterates it in verse 20. Everything is indeed clean, he says. There it is. And in chapter 15, verse 1, which we'll talk about next week, he identifies himself as one of the strong. We who are strong, who he would say, hold the right view of these things according to scripture. So, 
the, the important thing, though, to see is just because the strong are theologically right about the, what the Bible says is appropriate and allowed in the life of a believer doesn't mean that they can act however they want. There are two things that the strong need to know. They need to know that motivation matters and that stumbling is serious. And we'll just look at those in turn. First, they need to understand Motivation matters. Back in um, verse 14, he goes on to say, like, I, I know this thoroughly from the Lord Jesus. Nothing is unclean itself, but notice what he says. But it is unclean for anyone who thinks it is unclean. Welcome to postmodern church, right? <laughs> That's kind of a wild statement, isn't it? Paul's going through saying, these things are right and wrong. Um, the, clean, the strong are right about what they're saying. But if you think it's not okay, then it's not okay. Kind of sounds like Paul is a relativist. You do whatever you think is right. Is that really what's going on here? That's actually not what's happening. Paul is not a relativist. There is right and wrong. The strong are theologically right that it is okay before God to eat meat, and to drink wine. But Christianity isn't just concerned with doing the externally approved things. He's been showing us all throughout Romans 12 that what God is after, what God is doing among us, is working toward internal change and transformation, where we become people who actually love what is good, and we hate what is evil, and we do what is good and live rightly because God is making us into people who long to live this way and love to live this way. You see, you can do something that is outwardly right, but it's sinful because it was wrongly motivated. Jesus spoke of doing deeds to be seen by men, praying, giving, and inside, doing it so that others would see you. And what does he say? That's wrong. You've already received your reward. That's not um, good before God. It's a good thing, and it's done for the wrong reason, and therefore it's a sinful action. Well, the same principle is at work here in areas of Christian living. It is a perfectly good action to eat meat. There's nothing wrong with it before God, Paul says. But notice verse 23, uh, the end of the section. It says, but whoever has doubts and is condemned if he eats, because the eating is not from faith, for whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. Notice what he says, the weak have doubts. And what are their doubts? They're doubting that God is really okay that they can now eat steak. And therefore, the eating is not from faith. Paul is using faith here a little bit differently than he typically uses faith. He usually uses it as speaking of the faith that we have, that we all agree in about the Lord Jesus Christ. Here he's using doing it a faith really kind of as a synonym of a conviction. It's not in accord with their convictions. It's not in accord with their faith and conviction of how they live out their common faith in Christ. They think that God thinks it's wrong to do this, even though they've been told otherwise. And therefore, and just track with, the, with 
me for just a moment. Therefore, it's motivated by something other than faith. It's motivated by something other than thinking that it's right to do before God. What would the weak be being motivated to eat meat out of when they believe that it's wrong? The pressure that the strong are putting on them. The comments that the strong are making about, oh, come on, you can do this. Jesus has made it okay. The condemnation of living under the strong's judgment. The pressure to fit in. And Paul says, when they eat meat, when they think that it's wrong for them to do so, they're not doing it because they believe it brings glory to God. They are therefore doing it out of a wrong motivation. And it is therefore sinful for them to be doing. It's interesting, isn't it? So motivation matters. And so what Paul is saying is, hey, strong out there. It's not a matter. The Christian life is not a matter of just getting everyone to do what is allowed before God to do. Motivation matters in why we do these things. And that moves to the second sub-point here. Not only does motivation matter in the Christian life, but stumbling is serious. Stumbling is serious. Paul needs the strong to understand, hey, you have a role in what's going on here. And he wants them to make a judgment. He wants them to make a decision not to do spiritual harm to the weak among them. That goes back to the beginning of the passage, right? But rather decide or judge never to put a stumbling block or a hindrance in the way of a brother. Well, what does that mean? This language is actually, it's really vivid, picturesque language for a, a Greek speaker. A stumbling block would call to mind putting up a barricade to keep the enemy off the road and um, unable to come to your town. Um, a hindrance can be used of laying a trap for an animal. It's this hindrance that catches them and ultimately brings their destruction. And Paul's using those terms kind of synonymously here, a stumbling block or a hindrance. Now, Paul isn't saying that the strong are intentionally trying to trap or to harm the weak, but by the way they use their freedom, they're putting their weaker brothers and sisters in harm's way. They're setting up obstacles and traps for their faith. And it has serious consequences. In verse 15, Paul speaks about grieving a brother or sister by what we eat. This word um, isn't just that they don't like something. It's much deeper than that. Um, But sometimes, well, anyhow, I'll just leave that aside. Let me give an example of what it's not. Um, In a church like ours, we intentionally choose to sing both hymns and more contemporary songs. And... um, Anytime you do that, we will have preferences over those types of things, right? Some might be like, oh, I love hymns, and I'm grieved by the fact we do as many contemporary songs as we do. The flip side is also true. I love contemporary songs, and when we have a hymn, I'm a bit bummed. I wish we did less of them. If I were doing things my way, I would do this or this. That's not what grieved is about. That's like disappointment about our preferences. That's the fact that we have an emotion about something, which we have emotions about everything. Grieved here is much deeper than that. It's the language of speaking of the death of a loved one. They are grieved in their soul 
over what this is doing to their conscience because they believe it's wrong and they keep getting told and pressured to do it as right. And he goes on to speak in verse 15 as this destroying the one for whom Christ died. Destroying. This is weighty language. It's always used elsewhere to speak of people departing from the faith. That's the category we're talking about here. He doesn't spell out all of how that would happen. But he says, the actions of the strong can bring significant spiritual harm to the weak, even to the extent that they end up leaving the faith. And now if we think about this in the historical context, I think it helps us even understand a bit more what Paul's talking about. Much of the New Testament is addressed to Jewish believers, people from a Jewish background. And it's a warning and a call against the temptation to leave the faith in Christ and revert back to the Mosaic law and understanding and keeping those things. And so that's probably a strong element of, not a play on words, but that's probably a main element here of what Paul is addressing. And so can I just summarize a few things here? This is very powerful, I think. And what it's saying is just because it is right doesn't mean it's right for your brothers and sisters to do it now. The strong may find themselves thinking, this will be good for them. I'm just giving them a little push, you know, like I just kind of chew that meat around when I'm in front of them and it'll just help them. Or I make those little jokes just to bump them along in sanctification. But Paul says that by pressuring them, by flaunting their rightness, you may actually be doing spiritual harm to these brothers and sisters. You may be not just nudging them along in growth, you're actually throwing them into a spiritual ditch. And so he says, strong, beware of stumbling your brothers and sisters. Now, before we move on, I just want to make two clarifications, and then we'll move on into point two and point three, just in case these things are are swirling around in your mind, because these things are not easy to understand. This is kind of like a master class in the Christian life in many ways. This is where the rubber really meets the road of all kinds of complexities. But I, I want to say this by way of clarification. Paul is speaking about differing convictions about the Christian life. He's speaking of differences in what we would call Christian liberty, or non-essentials to the faith. This is different than speaking about clear violations of Scripture. And I think a few examples could just help us understand this. Paul is not saying that someone could call themselves weak and be saying, you know, I'm just really wrestling in my heart um, about this murder command. I'm just not really sure before God I should refrain from it. And please stop pressuring me not to murder. Right? That, that's a whole different conversation here. It's, it's not saying I can't in good faith cut off this adulterous relationship because I'm just not really sure what's right before God. No, those things are clear things for believers. We may ask the question of how we wisely go about that, but these are not the things Paul is saying it's okay to agree to disagree on. These are things about the Christian life where we have different convictions of how acceptable things before God get worked out in the Christian life. There is a difference between there's nothing unclean that says you can enjoy God's gifts and thou shalt not. Those are different categories here. Secondly, 
Paul's talking here about the potential of spiritual destruction, right? People leaving the faith. And anytime we hear about that, we have to keep two truths in mind that Scripture upholds for us. One is that God is sovereign and that a true believer cannot lose their salvation. Jesus says, all that the Father has given me are mine. No one can snatch them out of my hand. We could go on and on with passages that highlight the security of salvation for the true believer in Christ. And so scripture upholds the sovereignty of God and salvation, but it also speaks of human responsibility, in particular on a horizontal level, as we think about working out our salvation. And what I mean is this. It doesn't say to us personally, hey, if you're a true believer, you can't lose your salvation, so just live however you want and just go ahead and sin more that grace may abound. Like, Scripture is not saying that, right? So also on a horizontal level, it doesn't say, hey, if your brother or sister is truly saved, um, they can't lose their salvation, so don't worry about how you treat them. God's got this. Instead, we're to hear the urgency of the spiritual harm that we may really cause while still knowing God is ultimately sovereign in a person's salvation, and he is persevering and preserving true believers to the end. So, the strong are to beware of stumbling. That's point one. But what are they to do instead? What are they to do instead? Paul says they are to decide differently. Decide differently. Before we explain this, I want to ask you a question. What do you expect Paul to say? Now, I know it's hard because I already read it, but maybe we don't really understand it, so then it makes it more fair or something like that. But So here's the situation. Some Christians really struggle with eating meat. And before point one, I think we might have said, like, who cares? Tell them to get over it. It's right. But Paul says, now, wait a minute. It can do some spirit, serious spiritual harm to, meet, to eat meat around them or to pressure them to do so. So now what should you do, church? Well, that's pretty easy. Christianity is now a vegetarian religion. (laughs) Go change all those meals waiting up there. I want all the meat strained out of those things um, before our fellowship meal today. That's not what Paul says. Um, Instead, he walks a different line. He wants them to make decisions, make different decisions, and decisions based on two things as the strong the first thing he wants them to do is consider what is right for you before God. We see this in verse 22. He says, The faith that you have, keep between yourself and God. Blessed is the one who has no reason to pass judgment on himself for what he approves. What Paul is saying there is that the strong experience this blessing in the Christian life of knowing that the thing that they are doing, eating meat and drinking wine, are right and good before God, and they can enjoy that blessing. And they are free to do this privately. He says, keep it between themselves and God. Now, this doesn't mean they can only do it when no one else is around. Like, you have such a blessed life that you can eat steak in your closet right? That's not not the picture that he's holding out here. Just like when Jesus says, don't pray before men and instead go and do it in secret, it doesn't mean we can never pray publicly, right? Um, What he's saying is that they are not to do it in the presence of the weak, but they can enjoy these things privately when the weak are not around. And so do you see what's happening here? The first question is, what is right for you before God based on his word? 
But then we never, as Christians, are allowed to stop at the question, what is right? We always have to ask more questions. And the question that we have to consider um, is what is loving for others? That's the second thing Paul wants them to consider. Consider what is right for you before God, but second, consider what is loving for others. Look at verse 15. For if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you are no longer walking in love. And remember, he said that's the whole focus of this new life that God is bringing in us by grace back in chapter 13. Our assessment of how we act always has to be run not only through the lens of what is right, but also through the lens of what is loving. And in this particular context where we're differing over convictions, he spells out what that is in verses 20 to 21. Notice verse 20. Do not, for the sake of food, destroy the work of God. Everything is indeed clean, but it is wrong for anyone to make another stumble by what he eats. Right action, eating meat that's clean, not done in love, what's he saying? Wrong. It's wrong to do. But there's another option for the strong. There is a good, in verse 21, that they can do. 21 says, It is good not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything that causes your brother to stumble. They are able to love and do good by foregoing the exercise of their freedom. All of those words matter. They're not foregoing their freedom in the sense that they're never allowed to do this privately. They are foregoing the exercise of that freedom when they're in the presence of the weak. This means, then, that they're not going to eat meat around the week, especially when they're together in a church context. They probably weren't going out to dinner at restaurants all the time back then as um, poor Roman Christians, but that could be a place where it would apply. They're not going to be pressuring the weak to eat meat. Oh, man, if you could just get with the program, I've got this great steak recipe I could bring to the fellowship meal. It's too bad about your conscience. Um, And then this, I think, is the really big deal for us that gets right to the heart of it. They're not going to make getting on the same page about meat the issue when they're together as Christians. Hey, did you find this blog? Why don't you just read this blog that talks about how right it is to eat meat? I'm sure this one will work. No. When I see you on Sunday, I'm not even bringing that up. So in case we think, well... That was really weird, and the Roman church had a lot going on. I'm glad that's not the case anymore. Notice how broadly this principle applies. He says it's good not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything. Um, This doesn't mean we don't do the things that people have different preferences about. Otherwise, we wouldn't do anything as a church. Everyone has a different preference about everything from the temperature to the color to what we wear to what we sing. Those are preferences about these things. But what he's saying is we forego our exercise of freedoms in Christian living that are tearing other people's consciences before God. And so I'm hesitant to even give examples because we could have the temptation to freight them too much or to just stop listening after I give them and say, that's not a problem. But I'll give you some because I realize this is pretty like nebulous in ways. Some contemporary examples could be 
Um, one's views on eating halal meat, especially if you come from a Muslim background, and that's been seen as a very unholy thing now that you view yourself as a Christian. It could be convictions about eating food that's been offered to ancestors. If that was a part of your culture and way of life, and now you've come to Christ and you're wrestling with what that means. It could be things like a Christian's convictions about Halloween. For some, it might be seen as spiritually perilous and too associated with darkness in in which they once lived. For others, it could be seen as a great time to dress up and eat lots of sugar that's not in any way fellowshipping with true demons. It could be what is right to do on a Sunday. Um, I just can't get in my head that it's right for a Christian to do that. Or it could be how you vote. I, I just can't see how before God I could ever vote in this different way that another Christian says is an okay way to vote or the right way to vote. Um, it could be your standards of entertainment. Um, yeah, these are good gifts that we can enjoy, but I just don't see how Christians can listen to like these things. I don't think it's right for me to do. Those can be in the level of personal wisdom, but we also may have a temptation to be putting pressure on others to get everyone to go along um, so that it works out better for us to have the majority view. So all of this is to say we as believers need to be aware of this category and be sensitive to it, especially as we as a church are going to be people who are gathered together from all different cultural backgrounds and religious experiences. We need to be aware of what that does in a person's conscience and aware of the fact that there can be a disconnect and a delay between what a person may know in their head is right from Scripture and what they can know in their heart is okay for them to do. There can be a disparity between those things. And that really takes us to point three. See, Paul wants the the strong to decide differently and choose to forego exercising their freedom in certain situations. How do they ever get there? That way of living comes from a different perspective about what really matters. And that's point three. Keep kingdom priorities. Keep kingdom priorities. If you look at the passage as it's printed out in your Bible or in your um, order of service, at the heart, the heart of it is really found in verses 17 and 18. And everything above that is explanation of how, and everything below that is explanation of how. But the middle there is verses 17 and 18, where they explain the priorities of God's kingdom. Look with me at verse 17. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Paul rarely actually talks about the kingdom of God. (coughs) Jesus talked about it all the time. Um, Paul rarely does. And so when he does, whoa, we should listen. But what he's doing here is this. Um, He's telling us that peace and righteousness and joy are things that characterize God's eternal kingdom reign. Isaiah 32, and other parts in Scripture do this, but Isaiah 32 talks about when the king will come, the Lord Jesus, who will reign in righteousness. And his reign in righteousness will show peace all around, quietness and trust forever. And it also is a time of happiness and joy. That, brothers and sisters, righteousness, peace, and joy is what awaits us forever in the new heavens and the new earth through faith in Christ. That is what is coming for us. 
But, Paul says, that has broken in upon our lives even now as believers through the gospel. And so he says, remember these kingdom priorities. Our lives together as Christians should be characterized by these things. Our time together should be characterized by what? By righteousness. People who have been made right with God, seeking to live rightly with one another. We should be characterized by peace, not in judging and tearing down and destroying, but building up in love as we are now united together in Christ. We're to be characterized by joy in the spirit. You know what arguing about these things does? You know what bringing them up all the time in subtle ways, trying to change a person's opinion does? It's the opposite of joy. I'll just say that. (laughs) That can go on out there, all people want to do. But in here, we can focus on the fact that we've been brought together as the people of God and are going to experience life with God forever in perfect joy. And that joy is breaking in on us even now. And even now, joy is so often used as we can have this deep and abiding hope even as in this life we're suffering together but there's something deep that gives us joy. And so when he says the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, it doesn't mean we don't eat and that we don't drink or that those things are even wrong. He's just saying that while those are good things, they are not the main thing. God's kingdom is about growing in righteousness, peace, and joy. And so what it means is this, I think for Paul's audience, He would say to the strong, if you are so disappointed that there won't be meat at the Sunday meal that you're tempted to not even go, you've probably lost sight of kingdom priorities. If that is all that you're talking about with your brothers and sisters, you've probably lost sight of kingdom priorities. And he says not only to remember kingdom priorities, but then don't forget the king's way. And that's what we lose sight of most of all. Last week we saw that Paul says that Jesus is the Lord of our brothers and sisters and we are not. And what that means is we do what he says and we follow his ways. And in verse 18 he he says, whoever thus serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men, meaning doing something that's pleasing to God. What he's saying is in God's kingdom, we serve, we are slaves, of Christ Jesus, our Messiah. And the way we serve him, the thus of the passage, is what Paul's been talking about all along. It's walking in the way of love. It's that debt of love that we owe to everyone. It's the laying aside of our own freedoms that he talks about in verse 22. This is what our Lord Jesus wants from us. Because this is how our Lord Jesus is toward us. Think of all of the rights, the freedoms, the goods that he had before his incarnation when he was in glory at the side of the Father. He laid all of those rights and goods and freedoms aside to earn righteousness and peace and joy for us who are on a completely different page about everything in life. He entered the chaos and sin of this world so he could bring us peace with God. 
He endured the anguish of death on a cross so he could make us righteous before God by bearing our sins. And he bore our griefs so that we could know heaven's joy. And he did all that by laying aside the exercise of his freedoms. If Jesus did that for you, Paul says, why would you insist on eating meat and destroy the one for whom Christ died? Instead, he says in verse 19, let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding as we think about our relations with one another. I started by mentioning that it can be easy to see this as a a checklist, but it's actually about a different perspective. Really, at the end of the day, what Paul is doing is helping us to see what we've been seeing all along. If you look on the front of your bulletin, it says that the sermon series is the good news of God's grace. The beginning of Romans blows our minds as we who are sinners freely receive the grace of salvation given to us by faith in Christ. You know what the problem often is? We think that grace stops when we turn to chapter 12. We think that grace ends as we think about the Christian life. But what Paul is showing us here is a God who is just as gracious with us in sanctification as he is in justification. He doesn't expect us to have it all together before we come to faith in Christ, does he? We have so much. We are sinners, enemies of God, and yet through faith, salvation bestowed upon us. He also doesn't expect us to have it all figured out now that we're in Christ. This passage tells us this. God is fine with the fact that this side of glory, Christians will have different sincerely held convictions about what is right for them to do before God. He's okay with it. He has it under control. By the Spirit, he's graciously moving us along in righteousness and peace and joy. It's not relativism. It's not anything goes. You know what it is? It's grace. But do we view it like that, is what Paul's asking. Do we view sanctification as graciously as God does? What God wants from us then, the action that he says is always approved or pleasing, is for us to show that kind of grace to each other as well. Following in the way of our king, by moving toward one another in love and laying aside our rights, considering the interests of others and building each other up. That's what he wants us to walk in until one day our king returns. And when the Lord Jesus comes, our hearts and our lives will finally know what it is to be perfectly righteous and at peace and have the joy that we were made for. And we will experience it together as brothers and sisters forever in its consummate form. But until then, we go back and back to God's grace to love each other where we are in our differences. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we are amazed by your love and your grace. It doesn't fit with how we naturally are. It's a kingdom that's unlike any other kingdom. 
Will you give us faith to believe how good and loving you are toward us in bringing us to salvation and how good and loving you are with us while we're growing in our faith? Help us in this, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.